The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Would you open with me uh, to Romans, Romans 11. And as always, if you're here and you don't have one, there should be one around you, uh, close to you. But if you're here and you don't own one, we'd love to just give you that one. So if you're here, you don't have a Bible, find one around you. You can take that one with you. We'd love to, to bless you with, with that. Um, so as we get into our text this morning, I, uh, I wanted to start with a little bit of self-reflection. And I want to ask you a question, quick question. How do you handle mystery? Mystery, like, and I'm not, um, I'm not asking, like, do you love mystery novels or, uh, you know, true crime podcasts or docu-series or, or something like that. Um, in some ways, those are the opposite of what I'm talking about. What, what, I'm, what I'm asking is how much, how do you handle mystery? Not do you like solving mysteries, but how much do you like, how much can you handle the unknown the tension of not knowing. How do you handle mystery? How, how, how the things that you can't know, the things you don't know, I, I don't know about you, uh, but I don't like it. I really don't like not knowing. I, I, more than that, though, I don't love when I'm told I can never know. I, I hate that. I hate that. I want to at least be on the path to knowing the mystery. Uh, how do you handle mystery? I was thinking about um, I was thinking about it this week as I was thinking about mysteries, and I, and I think the reason I like mysteries is because I love solving them, or I love at least working towards solving them. I think that's the only reason I like it. But to be told, Justin, you can't, you can't wrap your mind around this one. Um, I don't love that. How do you love that? Do you, how do you deal with the tension of not knowing? As humans, we have struggled tremendously with this, whether it be because of pride or control. We don't like to be told it's not for you to know. And here's, as we kind of set the stage for where we're going a little bit, um, I believe that we can lean in one of, of two directions when we encounter the unknowable. Chances are here in this room, you're going to lean in one of these directions. First direction is toward apathy, and that is to throw your hands up and to say, okay, whatever. If I can't know it, why try? Who cares? Maybe you're here, and, and that's the way you lean when there's something you can't know. Or Maybe you fall the other way, and when you hear an unknowable challenge, you take that as a challenge to know it. And maybe you're here, and, and where this way, maybe you fall toward apathy. Maybe you're here, and on the other side, you fall toward pride. You fall toward pride. Pride. How do you handle the mystery? So in our text, we're going to come back to this. I want to propose to you that there's a different way. There's another way that we can and should handle mystery, a way that doesn't lead toward 
apathy or pride, but to a different path altogether. So that's where we're going. Uh, In our text, though, we're going to pick up in verse 25. And here's what Paul says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Paul says, just in case you're getting puffed up, just in just in case you think you know all the right answers, just in case you're wise or you think you are in your own sight, in case you think you're awesome, in case you think you've solved the unsolvable, he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Notice he does not say, let me help solve it for you. Let me help take away some of the mystery for you. He doesn't say that. He says, I want you, I want us to be aware of, to know that there is a mystery. He wants them to know that there is unknowable ahead. That's what Paul puts before us today. And here's the mystery. I'm going to go quickly. You'll you'll see why. Um, In our text, it says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. By the way, this comes from Isaiah 59, mostly, but Isaiah 27 as well. It says, as it was written, or it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish the ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Then Paul says, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's a little nugget of joy right there. I'm going to read that one again. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because they're disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. A lot there, a lot there, but there is the mystery. And if you notice, there is, if you've been with us over the past couple weeks, this is not new. Paul is not bringing out for us new things here. He is, he, is, he is almost summarizing, concluding what he has been bringing out in all of chapter 11. He's used this imagery of a tree, and the Jewish people um, through Abraham were given this promise to be God's people. They were given this promise that he was going to bless the nations through them, and Paul gives us this image of a tree of this this olive tree, the roots being God and his promises, the people being the branches. We get this beautiful picture of a tree. But then we also have read week to week that Paul has been showing us Israel has been hardened. Paul says, has said throughout, the, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, it as a whole, Israel did not live by faith. As a whole, they, they did not have faith. They trusted in the law. They trusted in their own ability. Now, there was a remnant who did, but by and large, to return to Paul's imagery, he calls them branches that have fallen off the tree. 
And we've seen these, this imagery all throughout chapter 11. And, and uh, God in his grace then, as we read about last week, chose to take branches from another wild tree and graft them on, to graft them on in his grace. Those wild branches, as, as we read, were the Gentiles being grafted into the same tree, the same root. And, and what I love, what we talked about last week, is this is us. This is our story. These are our roots that go down deep. This is our tree. Paul's been showing us this. And then one last thing that Paul has put before us that he again brings up here is that one day by the grace of God, the miracle of God, he will take some of those dead branches who have fallen and graft them back on. Just insane. It's, it's just, he's going to breathe life and bring restoration to the Jewish people by, by grace through faith in Christ. So we've seen this. We've, this is chapter 11 of Romans. And so here, Paul gives us this summary of this. And, and I, I found this um, helpful. Um, R.C. Sproul, in, as he took in all of this chapter, he summarizes it way better than I ever could. He says, God begins with the Jewish nation as his chosen people. The Jewish nation, in large measure, falls into apostasy. The olive tree that God cultivate cultivated becomes rotten and many branches fall are cut off then he says god doesn't cut down the tree but he grafts in the wild olive branches he brings gentiles into the community of faith and he has a definite number of such lastly he says when the last wild branch is grafted onto the tree then god is going to do something again with the original tree How's that for a summary? Just summarizes it all beautifully. Here's the question. But how is that going to work? How is, is that going to work? When is that going to happen? How many Gentiles, until it's the fullness here, how many how is God going to do this? How is this work going to be done? When? How? How many? How? Why? How are you with mystery? How are you with mystery? See, Paul doesn't give us the answers. Now, we can absolutely speculate. Um, we can fill up wall charts that show how and when our God is going to do these things. We can definitely, you know, try to be Sherlock Holmes with our Bible. Try to crack these, these mysteries. But God so often just doesn't give us the neat and tidy answers that we crave. Reminds me of another text. And before we go any deeper into this one, I do... I think it's good to read this one in parallel. You don't have to turn with me here, but it's not a very far journey if you did want to. Um, I would like to read in parallel with this text. I'd like to turn to the beginning of Acts. Like I said, if you want to go there with me, you can. If not, I'm going to do my best to, to read it here. Um, but in the beginning of Acts, what we have is Jesus has just done his work on earth. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserve and he just rose from death to life. 
He just conquered the grave resurrection. And Acts begins right here. In verse 3 of Acts 1, we see he, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. That's just just awesome. Uh, 40 days in speaking about the kingdom. So Jesus, after his resurrection, 40 days ministering with them. Verse 4, he says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus says, hey, listen, stay put. I'm about to do what I promised to do. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When when it happens, it's going to be incredible. But stay put. I'm coming. And then here's where I want to zoom in. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him. Notice their question, church. Lord. Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time? When is it going to happen? Is it now? How is it going to happen? How are you going to do this? When? How? How long? Sound familiar? And how does Jesus answer them? Does he hear them and then unpack the mysteries for them? Does he tell them? That's a great question. Let me give you the wall chart for that one. Does he do that? Does he reveal the timeline of heaven to them? No, he does not. Verse 7, he says to them, that's not for you to know. He says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you're going to receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria to the ends of the earth. They came to Jesus saying, Jesus, when and how and what? And then Jesus says, that's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the mystery of God. And then what does Jesus do? Right in the midst of that, he gives them something better. In this text, God says, I'm not going to give you my answers. I'm going to give you my mission and my presence. My mission for you and my presence with you, that is what I'm going to give you. That is what I'm going to give you. He reminds them of the mission he's given them, all the work they have to do, and he says, I'm going to indwell you through it. I will be with you as you as you go. So this is really important. I want you to please, please take this in, hear me. Throughout scripture, God does not overwhelm us and satisfy us with answers. Throughout scripture, God does not overwhelm us and satisfy us with all of his answers. Instead, what he does time and time and time again is he overwhelms us and he satisfies us with his presence. Whether you're Job. You remember the story of Job? Falling apart, wanting answers, spending 40 chapters trying to get answers. And what does God do? He shows up and he says, I am God, you are not, and that's okay. He gives him his 
presence. Whether you're the disciples here in Acts, looking around going, God, God, is this the time? Is this the time? Searching for answers to be told. It's not for you. I will be with you. Maybe you're, you're Abram or Abraham, and you're told, I need you to leave from everything you know, and I need you to go. Where? Why? I'll be with you. Maybe you're Noah and told to build a ridiculous boat. Why? When? How? Do it. I'll be with you. This is what God does. This is faith. This is faith. As we look at our text, listen, um, the question that you and I are wrestling with today, good chance it's not the you know, Jewish-Gentile conflict and getting answers to this and wanting to know, you know, that might not be your question. But you have questions. You have, we have our questions. And listen, God's desire is not to overwhelm you with all of the answers that you are asking. His desire for you is that you would be satisfied in him. In life, you rarely get all of the answers to the questions. God's desire is even better for you, though, to overwhelm you and to satisfy you with his very presence. And I want to pause just a little longer here. I want to rest just a little bit longer here because you might be here this morning and be, a, be seeking, be searching, be asking. You might be here this morning, and, and I think there are so many kinds of seekers. You may be here, and, and right now, you are just unsure of this whole thing. Unsure of, of Jesus, unsure of the Bible, the gospel, all of it. You are unsure, and you're seeking I am so glad that you are here and that you are seeking here. I want to thank you for being here and seeking here. Maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, but you have some significant questions, some big ones that you are wrestling with, the whys, the whens, the hows, questions about your faith, and you're seeking, again, I am so glad that you are here and seeking. Maybe you're here and you are just hurting. You are just absolutely hurting and you have significant questions about why it is that your life looks the way it looks. And you have question after question. Why is this happening? How could this be happening? God, how long are you going to let this keep happening? And you have huge, huge questions and you are seeking. Maybe you're here and that, that is you. Maybe you're here and you are just one of those forever curious people that you want to plumb the depths, you want to dig and then dig and then dig, and you are here and you are searching for more answers, more answers about your faith, about the Bible. This morning, to all the seekers, I want to thank you for seeking. 
And to all of us, I want to just bring out a few things for us to understand. As we think about the unknowable, the mystery that Paul has put before us, a few things that I would like for us to just understand. One is this. God has invited you to seek. In other words, seeking is not a sign of a problem or a sin, and it's not something that God gets really disappointed with you when you do. He's invited you to seek. God says to his people in Jeremiah, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I think of Jesus's words in Matthew 7 as he preached the best sermon that has ever been preached. In Matthew 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. That's a lousy gift. And if he asks for a fish, give him a serpent. That's way worse, way worse. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? God has invited you to seek. God has invited you to ask. Scripture gives us this invitation to look and to search. And in the, in the words of David, I had to include this one too, in Psalm 94, oh, taste and see. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. God has invited you to seek, to ask, to taste and see. The second thing, more than that, though, is that God can handle your questions. I brought up David. If you ever wondered if God can handle some tough questions, read the Psalms. Sometimes I think we see our questions as a sign of doubt and, and like God is hearing us and thinking, ugh, again? Really? That's not what Scripture says about your God. James in 1, James 1, 5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it will be given to him. This echoes John in 1 John 5. It says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. He has invited you to seek to ask questions. And church, no matter the questions, he can handle them. Um, how many of you have ever worked with students? One of the joys of working with students is they will ask the questions that are tough and difficult, and I love it. Your God can handle those kind of questions. The ones that make student workers um, uncomfortable. God can handle those. He can handle our questions. He has invited us to ask. God has invited you to seek. He can handle your questions. And three, this one is tough. 
God will often not give you all of the answers to your questions. This one is a difficult one to take in. Uh, He's invited you to seek. He's invited you to come. He can handle all of your questions, all of them, but that does not mean that he is going to give you a nice and tidy explanation to all of his his ways and his, his things. I don't know if you've been there, but have you ever just waited and searched and asked and pleaded but been given no answers? If you have, you are not alone. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? David's words. God is still sovereign and good, knows all things. He's still God. We are not. This is what faith is. But listen, that does not mean we have all the answers. The longer I get the joy and privilege of serving in pastoral ministry, the more I I know this. um, Most of the time, There are no answers. There are no easy answers. Most of the time, my job is to preach this, like hold to this, proclaim this, and then to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to pray alongside of people. In other words, I realize more and more my job is not to comfort people with all of the answers. My job is to continually point people to Jesus who will comfort them with his presence. It's a big shift. I am not your savior. If you're looking at any pastor for that, you will be disappointed. But to point to Jesus who comforts us with his presence. And it leads me to the last thing I want us to understand here. So God has invited you to seek. He can handle your questions. He's not going to give you all the answers to your questions. And then this, he desires to give you his presence. He desires to give you himself more than he desires to give you the answers to all of your curiosities. And that, my friends, is one of the greatest joys of the Christian faith in life, that we would find our contentment and satisfaction in Christ in all things, not circumstantial, that he is with us and present with us, that this is the great joy. Even when we do not have the answers, this is the invitation to all of us who seek, all of us who seek. It's to come and find the fullness and joy of satisfaction in Jesus Christ. In a weird way, you will not, I'll put it like this, you will find all that you are seeking. It just might not be what you thought you were seeking. I know that makes no sense. You know what I mean. Ever got something, you're like, oh, that was not what I was asking for, but thank you, God. And this leads us beautifully to the the final verses of our text. Back in Romans, by the way. Sorry, I've had you jumping around. But back in in Romans 11, verse, um, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I asked you at the beginning, how do you handle mystery? 
And again, I don't want to mislead you. I'm not talking here about mystery novels, unsolved crime or mysteries and true crime podcasts or docuseries or anything like that. The mystery of our text is not like that. In so many ways, the, the mystery of our text is a lot more like a deep and unending well that we just have no idea how deep it goes. No idea how deep it goes. Oh, or, okay, I'm a bit of a nerd. Give me a second. Um, I love Tolkien, and there's that, that scene in The Hobbit where the dragon smog is sitting on countless He's actually in countless amounts of gold and treasure. Just countless, unending, seemingly unfathomable amounts of gold and riches. And I'll stop geeking out about Middle Earth now, but I got to tell you, the mystery in our text is a lot more like that. It's, it's less like a true crime docuseries and more like unending amounts of gold. And you're like, how much is it? I don't know. I can't comprehend it. I can't wrap my mind around how much is there. It just goes too deep. The amount is overwhelming and it cannot be counted. That's the kind of mystery we see here. Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. That means unable to be clearly understood or searched out. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable, that means impossible to understand or interpret, how inscrutable his ways. This is exactly what God's word says in, in Isaiah 55, that when he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, for as high as the heavens are from the earth, so my, my ways are higher than yours, my thoughts are higher than yours. So, I want to come back to where we started. How do you and I, how do we handle the mystery? The unknowable. As I said already, there's a chance that we lean toward one of two directions. The first, maybe on this hand, is apathy. Remember, leading us to say, ah, who knows, who cares? I'm done even searching. If you can't know it, why try it? Listen, this approach you can see all over the place in the Christian church today all over those who would say you know what who cares who needs theology who needs doctrine just divides anyway who cares just give me the simple things just give me talk about love and Jesus and um, why study and search the unsearchable that doesn't make sense I mean why even bother ourselves with with things we can't understand you know I'm not a theologian which by the way pause yes you are just if you're a good one or a bad one or not. Anyway, I'm back, I'm back. Um, you might be here and you just throw your hands up. That's the spirit of apathy. There's a mystery of God. We see that it is massive and say, just give me the simple stuff. Just why even try? Um, and so for many, what this has resorted in is a really thin view of God. Lazy view of our God. He's about this big. And if you ask any questions about him, it, it, don't do that. It's led us to this apathetic, we don't study, we don't search, we don't ask, we just accept. Oop, that's this view. 
Or on the other hand, like I said, we might be over here banking on the pride side, which says, you know what, that challenge of not knowing, I'm going to know it, right? Um, Listen, sadly, this approach is also widely popular in the Christian church, especially among teachers who would seek to impress people by solving all the unsolvable mysteries. We see this all over with people who, who um, know everything, whether it be Arminian, Calvinism, creation, end times. It doesn't matter. I have a chart. And let me tell you, everyone else is foolish but me. That's pride. That is pride. There are people who will tell you there is no mystery. This is the way it is. This is no other way to see it. We have this. This gives us answers. So stop asking questions. Done. Church, that's pride. And it totally misses. Yes, we do have the Bible. Yes, it provides us with who our God is and answers and all of that. But the first thing that this Bible is going to tell you is that you serve a God who is bigger than you. Like, beyond your comprehension. As Paul says, lest you think you'll be wise in your own sight. In other words, stop it. I want you to be aware of this mystery. This is what the Bible tells us. This is what the Bible says. So on this hand, we have apathy. On this hand, there is pride. And I want to propose for us, as we approach the mystery, there must be a third way. There must be another path that we walk in. And I want to call this path a humble hunger. A humble hunger. Humble meaning I know I'm not God and I know he is. Humble meaning I know that I am not the one in charge. I'm not the all-knowing one. Humility is knowing That our God is holy, our God is true, our God is bigger than us, and it's knowing who we are in light of that. That's 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 humble. And and hunger, hunger is longing to know more about Him. Longing to know more each and every day, hungrier to know God more, to study, seek, and ask, and to know the answers. A humble hunger. A humility that says no to pride. And a hunger that says no to apathy. A humble hunger. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This is our path. In light of the mystery, in light of all the things that I don't know, that you don't know, we do not walk in apathy. We cannot walk in pride. Church, we walk together in a humble Hunger. In our text, in verse 34, Paul says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who is his counselor? Love that question. Um, In other words, uh, who knows as much as him? Who is he calling to get advice on a tough decision? The answer is no one. Then he asks, Or who has given him a gift to be repaid? In other words, Who is God in debt to? 
Who can he possibly owe? Again, no one. He has no equal. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of our God. So as we come to all these things, the depths, we come to it not in apathy or pride, but in a humble hunger. Humble hunger. And I want to... I want to do one more thing before we close this morning. One more thing. Um, I mentioned that this text feels a lot like a conclusion where Paul is wrapping it up. And you really see that when we get to verse 36. To, um, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. He even throws an amen in here. Like, it feels to me like Paul is ending. And if you are looking at your Bible, my Bible, does, Romans doesn't end in chapter 11. What is going on? Why would he do this? And so as we bring this to a close, I want to zoom out a little bit to set the stage for where we're headed. So Romans is a book that we can see in two parts we see uh, chapters 1 through 11 is this rich theology. He's just putting this, unpacking the doctrine of grace and of faith and salvation, the doctrine of sin. He unpacks the doctrine of, of the church and Israel. It's thick, it's rich, it's awesome. And here's what we're going to see. Chapters 12 through 16, there's a shift that happens. And all of a sudden, we shift now, not to just know theology, but now we shift into lived theology. Practical. D deeply practical. Paul describes the way that this theology is going to play itself out in our lives and in the life of the church. And here's why I bring this up at the end of, uh, we're at the end of our section of this first part in Romans today. We're at the very end, and Paul is bringing it together. He's been unpacking this, I mean, chapter by chapter, and now he's bringing it all together, and he's drawing us to worship. He's drawing us up to worship. To, he's drawing us in to a mystery that is bigger than us. And there's a principle that I want to bring out this morning that's going to go with us for the rest of our time in Romans. And here it is. Theology leads to doxology. Theology leads to doxology. Theology is the study of our God. To know him. Doxology is our worship. What we know about God leads to our worship, how we worship. What we believe about God, what we believe about his word will shape our worship. Theology, study of God, doxology, our worship of God. And listen to me, poor theology leads to poor doxology. When you have a puny, small, weird view of God, it leads you to a misshapen worship. It leads you to a misshapen life. And on the flip side, 
rich and beautiful and right theology will overflow itself into our lives and lead us to right worship. And we see how big and perfect and how wonderful and faithful and good our God is. When we understand grace, it will shape our worship. It will shape our lives. What we know and believe about God is so important. It's going to now we will see turn the corner and we will see what a life lived looks like. We're going to see the way theology shapes us and our worship. And that shaping will really kick into gear next week as we turn into chapter 12. And because I'm not going to keep you here all day, I will leave that for next week. Thank you.